Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome, I'm Roy Ford-Brown and I'm joined by... David Crowther. And we are doing the third of our podcast series on British political parties, for slash English. And David, these are the things that have made England, but in many ways I think now we've got to the 20th century, things feel very recognisable now. They do a bit, don't they? And also, of course, these are the things that make Britain recognisably here, but they go. But they do. Things are getting modern. We're going to talk about things that we take for granted now, like health insurance and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and we have one really significant party which we haven't spoken about. Any idea what that party might be? I'll give you a clue. It's not the Monster Raven Looney Party. Okay. Well, a significant party during this period, actually, is the Scottish Prohibition Party, which had one member David, for about David 10 stopped. to 15 years. I, I think years. you've been deliberately smart and I'm obtuse. Not. I think I you, came, you knew, I came you across knew this where chat. I was trying Edwin, to go. <laughs> Edwin Scrimger, his name was. Everybody loved him and he came from Dundee. And he was the only British political party ever to have been formed around Prohibition. Oh, there was also the Labour Party. Ah, there is the Labour Party. So I know we ended in 1906, but I want to go back a few more years. And the The Labour Party is going to come out of the trade union movement and also things like the Fabian Society. Back end of the 19th century, what we see is the rise of the working class in terms of importance. They are the backbone to industrial might of Britain and, and the empire. 
and they're getting enfranchised. So in 1867, we have an extension of, of, of suffrage, and then in 1885, all of a sudden, there is now working-class people in the cities who have money in their pocket and also have a political say. Now, originally, or let's say initially, they kind of form an alliance with the Liberal Party. So we have these Lib Lab candidates and one of the first to stand was a gentleman called George Odger in the Southwark by-election in 1870. But these are independent Labour people who are standing for, for various elections. And it's not until we get to 1895, in that general election, that the independent Labour Party put up some 28 candidates. And they win, but they only win 45,000 votes. The leader of this group is Keir Hardy. But he really thinks that the way to gain success for these independent ragtag bobtail mixture of Marxists, socialists, Democrats and so, some intellectuals is for them to have proper party affiliation. So in 1900, we have the Labour Representation Committee. They're formed and really the, the galvanising force behind them is going to be the Trades Union Congress. Again, what we've got to remember is that we don't have one real solidified political party, but we do have the trades unions and their congress, which is the overwhelming umbrella for lots of unions. So they have a special conference and they put together all these left-wing organisations to form them into a single body that will help sponsor parliamentary candidates. So in February in 1900, we have the Labour Representation Committee. They're formed. Fundamentally, this is now the Labour Party. Any questions, sir? Not at all. We have the Secretary of the Labour Representative Committee was a, also a very famous Labour figure, was he not? Namely one Ramsay MacDonald, who will be an infamous figure as we get a little, little bit further through our story. Something to look forward to. Yes, really interesting, the longevity of a lot of these political characters. So Ramsay MacDonald is actually going to go on to form the first Labour government in 1924. But also, we do have Lloyd George, who we have mentioned previously in the podcast, who's going to last all the way in political life, all the way up to World War Two. These were dare I say, career politicians at a time when everything seemed to be up for grabs. So in the 1906 general election, which is a big one, David, believe you me, this is going to be a big election in terms of what this government is going to do. The LRC won some 29 seats, but they're helped by a pact between Ramsay MacDonald and, and the Liberal Chief Whip, which was aimed at avoiding splitting the opposition vote between Labour and Liberal candidates, because then we need to get rid of the Conservatives. Conservative PM is Arthur Balfour, rather ineffectual figure, actually. My teacher at school said he was ineffectual because he wasn't married. And then in 1911, we're going to get thrown a law. <laughs> and then in 1923, we're going to get Baldwin. What his point was that we ought to talk about this a bit, actually, how important it is to be married for a prime minister, because that connects them with the social network. And in this day and age, it's very much who you know and networks of people, especially in gentry times. So it is actually, you know, it's a good point. Anyway, he was a history teacher. Who am I to argue? So the 1906 general election, 
Now, I knew this general election was important. I didn't quite realise how important. This is, the, this is the power of doing some research, David, and not just talking off the top of my head. I mean, I can't feel right. You mean you actually know what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not sure I believe that. In, in this episode. Now, dear listener, if you learn anything from this podcast, the schisms in British politics always seem to involve the Liberal Party. So we talked about the Liberals who are kind of pro and, and anti kind of, kind of tariffs and pro the empire at the back end uh, of the last episode. But what we have here in, in 1906 is a real sense that there is this growing working class electorate and demographic that needs some level of economic as well as political representation. And you can have a split between the social liberalism of people like Asquith and Lloyd George and the classic liberalism, and this is people who were still enthralled to people like Gladstone. So the classic liberals are like, well, you just give everybody economic freedom and that will, and they'll be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But then the social liberals say, well, we need to alleviate poverty and that will give people opportunity. And one of the things which really feeds into this ideological split is a lot of kind of social studies have done by people like William Booth who walk the streets of London and looking at the state of the poor. The traditional argument was people were just unemployed because they were feckless. They were on the booze, they were drinking too much and they were just lazy. And William Booth and many other kind of people who went and actually studied this said, no, people are poor because they are sick and they are old. Those are two classic reasons. They cannot work because they're ill. This then ushers in this debate about liberalism and the role of the government. And you have this really reforming, brilliant administration in 1906, led by Herbert Asquith. So the, the Liberal Party is going to shift to the left. Sorry, could I at that point interject? Because yes, we're going to talk about another very famous figure of British history, David Lloyd George, our only Welsh PM, I think. Mm -hmm. So he says at about this time a classic statement of the new liberalism you've been talking about. He says, four spectres haunt the poor. Old age, accident, sickness and unemployment. We are going to exercise them. We are going to drive hunger from the hearth. We mean to banish the workhouse from the horizon of every workman in the land. So that sort of gives a bit of a backdrop to what this administration is going to do, as you were saying. And you've taken wind out of my sails. Have I? I'm sorry. I must, I'm, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll stay silent now. You won't hear because another word. We are going to have this transformative government, which is going to come in. Now, David, buckle in, right? Because okay, okay. these people do a lot. Now, to be fair to the Conservatives who've just been kicked out... They do pass an Unemployment Workmen Act in 1905, and there is the Employment of Children's Act. So slum housing is to be cleared, new houses are to be built. So let's not just say that the Conservatives, the Tories, were doing naff all, but the Liberals they, they really essentially were because the hat. I think it's an interesting point mm -hmm. to make. That we're talking about the Labour Party and their, their significance being with the number of MPs they have in Parliament. But in actual fact... Their influence mm -hmm. is stronger than that and earlier than that. You were talking about the, the Lib Lab Pact. And 
they're very much exercising their influence from the back door in the, in this period. So the Liberal Party is partly the new liberalism owes a lot to what Labour and the Socialists and the Fabians are all saying to them. You know, they adopt this programme that you're going to talk about a lot because of that pressure that's coming from this new representation of Labour. That's a fair point. And also there's an international context as well, which I hadn't mentioned, which is that we are having a massive naval forward slash military rivalry with Germany. And also the United States has gone way past us economically, though they through isolationism, they restrict themselves just to the Western Hemisphere. But the GDP of the United States is way past Britain by now. But we have an empire. And the one thing that we notice in Germany is the amount of social legislation and reforms. And it's one Bismarck who first brings in unemployment benefit, the dole. I think it's like in the 1860s, it's like a long time ago. And the one thing about Bismarck is he's not, a, he's not a socialist at all. But what he is, is a pragmatist. And Britain looks at German society and all of the social provisions there and says, hmm, we need to be able to keep up with the Germans here. So the Liberals, and this is going to be their high point, win the general election with the help of the independent LRC, the Labour Representation Committee. These are just some of the things that they do. Children. In 1906, children were provided with free school meals. But it's only 1914 that it really becomes compulsory for a whole load of reasons which we don't need to worry about ourselves now. They're going to license pubs. Though this really comes in after the people's tax in 1910, where they're going to license pubs and really with a view getting down the amount of hours that, pe- that pubs are open and the amount of pubs because... They think it's going to make people more productive. Alcohol consumption is going to fall by a half between 1900 and 1920. So this does mirror somewhat prohibition. We don't get rid of it in Britain, but we really get a handle on pubs which were on literally on every street corner. I think it was a good point to make, actually. I think they hoped to get rid of a third of English pubs. And there were, at the time, 100,000 pubs in Britain. A lot more. I think more than double more than we've got now. Through the 20th century, we will see the influence of religion in politics really begin to fall away. So the Liberal Party and the Whigs have always been associated with nonconformism, the Tory party, the Anglican church, famously the Tory party at prayer. So we're going to see that go. But actually, in fact, it's still there for a moment. And that's fueling this anti-pub thing is still that nonconformist sentiment. But by the Second World War and after the Second World War, you know, that'll, that'll leave us. And the other thing to remember is that these are very progressive policies. And in in the United States, we also have an era of progressivism under Theodore Roosevelt. And what feels weird to us now is how much that alcohol and abstaining from alcohol or cutting down people's alcohol consumption was seen as very progressive back then. Now we wouldn't see it as such, but absolutely in terms of progressive forward thinking, abstinence with alcohol. And as you said, and also there's this religious element as well, which really played into it, you know, in terms of morality. So I throw this in just to keep our American listeners engaged, but let's, let's buckle in. So Then we have the Education Administrative Provisions Act, which introduces what became known as the free place system. So there we have local authorities who have the power to acquire land to construct new secondary schools. It's like, no, we need to educate people. 
then the Probation Act of 1907. This is establishes proba- the probation service with the supervision within the community for young offenders as an alternative to prison. Medical inspectors inspections begin in 1907, but many poor families could not afford the doctor's fees, but it was not until 1912 that medical treatment was provided. Old age pensions are introduced for those over 70 and the paid can you remember how much y- your father got? How much my father got? Well, your father was around for the 1908 introduction of pensions, wasn't he? My father? You rude man. <laughs> my father was born in well, 1925, what, um... Sonny Jim. Either your mass at fault or your manners. <laughs> <laughs> they got a princely sum of five shillings a week. And this is going to be a real, real point of principle for Liberal candidates to really crow in the 1910 election. So 75% of Liberal candidates are going to talk about the fact that they've introduced pensions when they're running for elections. This is a big deal. This is a way, one of the key ways of alleviating elderly poverty. The Germans have had this for practically a generation. We've now finally caught up old people are not going to have to rely on their children a way of sustaining through their old age. They get a pension, five shillings a week. Then for, for the workers, we have labour exchanges in, in order to help people find work. So if you haven't got a job, you can go somewhere and somebody can help you find a job. And then in terms of the sick, we have the National Insurance Act of 1911 with compulsory health insurance, which is provided for workers earning less than £160 a year. That's just what you spend for your family going out for a meal now at the pub, isn't it? It's incredible <laughs> when, when you look at I these figures. We used to have one at Harlow when I used to go and work in Harlow. Oh, my God, fantastic. Sorry, just made me feel nostalgic. This National Insurance Act in 1911, free medical treatment is going to be given to, to people and also a maternity benefit of 30 shillings. An estimated 13 million workers are going to be covered by this scheme. This is all big stuff. This is all big stuff. And then in 1909, what we have is the People's Budget by David Lloyd George, who we did mention before. He's the Chancellor, so he's the Finance Minister. He says, I want to tax the rich in order to subsidise working citizens and the ill and injured. And I'm going to do a crowther here. Lloyd George argued that his budget would eliminate poverty and commended the budget thus. This is a war budget. It is for raising money to wage implacable warfare against poverty and squalidness. I cannot help hoping and believing that before this generation has passed away, we shall have advanced great step towards that good time when poverty and wretchedness and human degradation, which always follows in its camp, will be as remote to the people of this country as the wolves once were that infested its forests. I felt for a moment as though I was there listening to Lloyd George. I felt he was there with me, fresh from his Welsh chapel. I was going to say, I, I kind of let the side down a little by not having a few more Welsh intonations there. Yes. I went for standard old-fashioned RP. But I think that's, that's good. Otherwise, it might come across as insulting, you know, given the quality of your accent. <laughs> a little bit condescending. Shall I give now, you a quote back from Lloyd George? I know it's a battle of the quotes. Quote I particularly like this one because it's, uh, there's a bit of 
delightful passive aggression along the with all due respect sort of line. Okay, so he mm. says along the same lines, I lay down as a proposition that most of the people who work hard for a living in the country belong to the Liberal Party. I would say, and I think without offence, that most of the people who never worked for a living at all belong to the Tory party, which is a lovely thing to be able to say without offence. Everybody in the Tory party is an idol, but isn't. Yes, whatever. Anyway. So this budget is going to meet with opposition in the House of Lords. And what those Tories, what those Conservatives do in the House of Lords is to defy British constitutional convention. The Conservatives have an inbuilt large majority in the House of Lords and they vote down the budget. If you are rich, you don't want to hear that someone's taxing you <laughs> to give, give the money to the poor. But this is going to be the last time that the Lords really are going to have a significant part in, in, in British Parliament. Oh, yeah, the finger is up, Crowther. OK, so what at this period of conflict with the House of Lords, we get another lovely quote from Lloyd George, where he says, should 500 men, ordinary men, chosen accidentally from among the unemployed, override the judgment of millions of people who are engaged in the industry which makes the wealth of this country, which I think is really nice. We're finally at a period where all that deference to the ancient lords and blah, 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 is finally being busted by just a bunch of unemployed people. Mm. He were utterly seen as a way of encumbering the rise of the working class and just fairness within society. And we really do see ourselves as being in a race, as I've said before, with key powers which Germany is one. They have all this social legislation. We need to keep up with them. And also, this is just fair in its right and its proper. So there's going to be a general election. And really one of the key things is to reduce the power of the Lords. The Liberals are going to be returned in a hung parliament, but the Liberals form a minority government with the support of the Labour Party and the Irish Nationalist MPs. The Lords are going to accept the budget. However, as a result of the dispute over the budget, the new government introduced resolutions that were going to later form the Parliament Bill to limit the power of the Lords. So the Prime Minister Asquith asked Edward VII to create sufficient new peers to pass the bill. He's going to stuff it with Liberal peers. The King says yes, provided that Asquith goes back to the polls to get an, this mandate for this constitutional change. So that's what I referred to before, that then the Liberals are going to come back into power with the help of the Labour Party and the Irish Nationalists. But the Lords blink. We don't need actually to stuff the Lords with these 500 new Liberal peers to get rid of the Conservative majority. The Conservative Lords do in the end back down in August 1911 and the House of Lords do assent to the Parliament Act. It's a close rung thing but this means that no longer can the Lords actually block legislation from the Commons. One of the amazing things I think about this period, apart from the drama of it, I mean, the last person to create a whole load of lords was back in the Reform Act, wasn't it? And then Queen Anne before that. So it's, it's a very dramatic occasion. But also the interesting thing was you get this mm. election, which is really the second election, 1910 actually, which is really people versus the peers, you know, get these people to move. And in actual fact, it only produces a hung parliament and a minority government, which is propped up by the Irish peers, the Irish members of parliament, and Labour members of Parliament, which I find rather remarkable. 
You know, you would have thought there would be a much greater body of steam behind the Liberals. But in actual fact, they only really just scrape through. And you know, there's compromises to be done with Ireland. Yeah, and they, they just scrape through. It's really interesting to look at the commentary of the time, because again, Lloyd George, who we're both quoting, said this. The partisan warfare that raged around these topics was so fierce that by 1913, this country was brought to the verge of civil war. There are so many things happening at this moment. There's the suffragette movement. There is this restive new working class. And there isn't even male universal suffrage at this point, which I didn't realise. Yeah. You know, I thought male suffrage had came in in the late 19th century, but no. We have this government who, in its previous administration, has come in with so much new legislation which has been put into place. We are radically changing the face of English or British society. And really, there's this massive change going on in the Liberal Party. And I did say this before, that if you look at the history of British political parties in the 20th century... There's two things which are almost symmetrical, which is the rise of the Labour Party and the decline of the Liberal Party, but it's also the schisms within the Liberal Party. They're always kind of defecting. And there were some classic Liberals who sort of weren't happy with things. There's a guy called Harold Cox who was elected as a Liberal in 1906 and who was almost one and alone in terms of Liberal MPs in his opposition to all this legislation. And he considered them to be eroding freedom and undermining individual responsibility. This kind of notion of Whiggism and classic liberalism under Gladstone, it's kind of now really gone. But this government, even though Lloyd George says we are almost at civil war in this country, so diametrically opposed are many people to the policies of this progressive and transformative government, but they still go on. Now, something's going to happen in 1914, which happens all the way over there in Sarajevo, and we're going to fall headlong into a world war. We go into this world war with the Labour Party actually not being kind of for it. If you look at some of the Fabian roots and, and, and the, in terms of religious dissent, some of the roots of the Labour Party, there's a lot of pacifists who find themselves as mem members of the Labour Party. And the Labour Party is kind of against this war. But just before we really go into, the, into this war, Asquith is forced to give Irish nationalists a home rule bill. And I don't think we've really paid quite enough attention to these various home rule bills. You know, Gladstone is going to flounder on them, isn't he, in his administration wanting to get home rule for Ireland. Things get so tense in, in 1914 that Ulster Unionist volunteers under Sir Edward Carson launch this opposition to home rule for Ireland because they see themselves then as being under a parliament of which the Catholics are going to be in a majority. And it seems like Ireland is going to be on the brink of civil war. But we do have the start of the First World War which is going to put a pay to that. But it only just delays things which are going to happen in Ireland. I think this is the time Lord Randolph Churchill, Winston Churchill's father, made a bit of an arse himself and destroyed his career over Ireland by resigning in protest and saying, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. He resigns and everybody says, OK, thanks for that. He thought he was going to be invited back and that torches Randolph Churchill's career. But what happens at this time is Asquith actually sticks to his guns. There's a bit a lot of... Toing and throwing and jiggery pokering, but in the end he sticks to 
an unpartitioned Ireland in this bill, which is really interesting given what happens later. This Liberal government ends in May 1915 really because of artillery shell production and also over the disastrous Gallipoli campaign. So Asquith decides to, because of Gallipoli, he decides to form a new coalition government with the majority of the new cabinet coming from his own Liberal Party and the Unionist Conservatives, so the Conservative Party, but with some token Labour representation. Remember, you know, we have this national crisis. We are at war and a total war. The new government only lasts for a year and a half, and it was the last time the Liberals are actually going to really control a government in the United Kingdom. So the 1915 coalition falls apart at the end of 1916 when the Conservatives withdraw their support from Asquith and give it instead to Lloyd George, who becomes the Prime Minister at the head of a new coalition, mainly made up of Conservatives. Asquith and his followers moved to the opposition benches in Parliament and the Liberal Party was deeply split again. I think we all know the outcome of World War One. Hang on, is it Austria that wins? Who wins World War One? It's a close-run thing between them and Tsarist Russia. Is it, so, it penalties uh, yeah. at the end? So uh, it was, the, the, the fate of the world was resolved over penalty kicks. Germany won on bloody penalties again, didn't they? Sorry, I was being stupid. Forgive me. One of the things that really marks the workplace in World War One is women working because a lot of the men were, of course, in the trenches fighting the war. So but by the end of World War One, we have the representation of the People Act in 1918. And there's no question anymore that women can be denied the vote. Though, interestingly, the description of this act is wonderful. So the representation of the People Act 1918, almost all adult men, excepting only peers, criminals and who else was left out from the voting franchise? Podcasters? Lunatics. Well, podcasters. That's what it says. If you're a peer, you can't vote. If you're a criminal, you can't vote. And lunatics. And then most women over the age of 30 are now given the right to vote. This almost triples the British electorate at a stroke from 7.7 million to 21.4 million in 1918. And of course, this is going to set the stage for a surge in Labour representation in Parliament. But this really now, considering the high point of the Liberal Party is 1906 to 1910, the Liberal Party is going to now rapidly decline. And the, the party suffers a split, which allows the Labour Party to gain much of the Liberals' support. Because Lloyd George is heading a Conservative coalition, we have the Independent Liberal Party and a National Liberal Party. As I keep saying, you know, all these schisms are fundamentally always around the Liberal Party. And if anything is going to remain true, it's the fact that the Liberal Party that split off from the Liberal Party, it's always just a matter of time before they actually join the Conservative Party. They never go leftwards. They always, they always drift rightwards and then join the Conservative Party. Now, Lloyd George is going to remain a Liberal all of his life. And though he abandons many standard liberal principles, you know, to fundamentally win the war at all costs, but then to have a robust, strong foreign policy after the, the, the war, after World War I, he, he opposed the old-fashioned laissez-faire attitudes of the liberals. He believes in government having a key role 
in helping uplift people. But this is all a boon for the Labour Party in terms of them when they go to the electorate now, because we have lots of working class people. I wanted to just add that in the 1919 election or the 1918 election, we get our first female MP who is a famous anti-Semite. Asta. Nancy Asta, that's right. Who has some lovely exchanges with Winston Churchill. There's a very famous one about her saying, if I was your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. And if Churchill replied, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. Which is cutting. And another thing. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. And there's there's another one in return where Nancy Astor is asked by Churchill what disguise he should wear to a masquerade ball. And she she replies by saying, why don't you come sober, Prime Minister? Child so thought Quite a nice put down. Anyway, I've I've interrupted your high thoughts with trivia. So sorry. Oh, I've, the first no, no, no. first so the female 19- minister incidentally doesn't happen until 1929, which is Margaret Bonfield in Ministry of Labour, and she's a Labour candidate. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. The 1918 general election, Lloyd George is hailed as the man who won the war. It's called the the Khaki election. And Lloyd George and the Conservative leader, Bono Law, they they support candidates who are official, in inverted commas. This is called a coupon. And it was issued against many sitting Liberal MPs. And the Liberals had just come out of that election with a devastating loss. Those remaining Liberal MPs who were opposed to the coalition government went into opposition under the leadership of Donald, Sir Donald Maclean. We just see the Liberals now, they have just significantly declined as a political party. And all the way through the 1920s, there's going to be further schisms. Another interesting fact or important fact about the 1980 election is the complete victory of Sinn Féin in Ireland. The Home Rule Party, led by John Redmond, which had been essentially about, yes, we want semi-independence, but semi-independence disappears for a completely nationalist government. And that our set of MPs, driven by the Easter Rising in 1916, of course. And so now we have a a situation where there's a guerrilla war and then, you know, the, the treaty which sees Ireland have, I think, dominion status and then obviously will eventually finally leave. Mm. And, I, and I do think we've had somewhat of a, a rather traditional English view of the 19th century and the early 20th century in that we didn't really impress upon the listeners of how important the Irish MPs were. We did talk about Pitt resigning because he wanted Catholic emancipation. We have all these Irish MPs are sitting all the way through the 19th century, specifically the late 19th century. Home rule for Ireland is this beating drum, which the Liberals are kind of for, but there is these conservative factions kind of against it. Things really do blow up the Easter rising in 1916, the country's at war 
and Ireland is going to get a level of, of independence with Ulster remaining under British control and then there's going to be an, an Irish civil war. But some of the things that the British Army does in Ireland before independence with, with the black and tans, we can hang our heads in shame as being British. I think it's fairly safe to say that if you look at the, the Irish uprising, it was the treatment of those people who were held out in the post office which massively contributes to Ireland becoming independent because we're seen as being incredibly heavy-handed how we dealt with them. They had, at that point, very little public support, but by the time we'd thrown the book at them and some more, they become total martyrs and uh, Ireland and home rule becomes a fait accompli. Nodding doesn't really work on a podcast, Good point. Just, just letting Good you point. know. We should have a catch-up on the, the good old Tory party. And so... Disraelia, who is the most quotable politician in British history, in a time of great political change and rapid political transition, it will generally be observed that political parties find it convenient to rebaptize themselves. And this is actually true for this period. Bonalore is a very different leader than Arthur Balfour. He's very much more interventionist, very much more aggressive. And he really gives it, get, gets stuck into Asquith. So at one stage in particular, he says, I'm afraid I shall have to show myself very vicious, Mr. Asquith, this session. I hope you will understand because they're in opposition and he wants to make a splash and get the confidence of his conservative MPs going again. But during this period, he manages to shelve and his successor, Stanley Baldwin, managed to rather shelve this incredibly divisive issue they've got, which is about tariff reform of the imperialists like Joseph Chamberlain, who want to introduce tariffs and then give preferential tariffs for the empire to help build that sense of empire and coherence, and the liberals who want to just stick with free trade. So he manages to find a way of patching over that difference by basically delaying it so there's much more unity in the Tory party. In 1911, they reform the Conservative Central Office. You now have the arrival of a party chairman, which we're absolutely used to now, and a party treasurer. And now those, obviously, a party chairman is in the Conservative Party and is a major figure. We get the introduction now of much less deference in Parliament, the kind of slanging matches that we're now used to at PMQs and all the rest of it, begins to start in this period. There's a an interesting check called Lord Hugh Cecil, who is the son of Lord Salisbury. They are so aggressive towards Asquith that at one stage Asquith just stands there, unable to speak for 30 minutes because of all their, the noise they're making. So after Hugh Cecil, they're called the hooligans. You begin to see the Conservative Party reviving after what is a very long period out of office. And Bonalore puts himself ahead of the hooligans. And he says famously, I am their leader. I must follow them, which is an interesting idea of, of leadership. Anyway, so they're beginning to reappear and begin, come again to be a stronger force. And, and indeed, in 1922, they are going to win the election. And another very important bit of party, party politics is born, which is a backbench group of Conservative MP known as the... The 1922 Committee. Correct. Take a gold star and go to the head of the class. So yes, and now that they're constantly talked about whenever there's any trouble. So 
The mm. nice thing to do elections, the Tories win, and we get a new Tory leader called Stanley Baldwin. He's a very homely figure, rather chaotic, actually. And he, he is elected against the competition from only one person. There's only one person that could have been, who's a rather interesting character called George Nathaniel Curzon, who is a delightfully pompous man. And I would quite like to give you another quote. It's not strictly relevant. Am I allowed to give another quote? Quote away. Okay. So this chap is very pompous, George Curson. Dresses all the right clothes. Says things like, nobody wears brown, a brown suit in London and no gentleman eats soup at luncheon, which is quite delightful. And there's this little popular ditty that gets used about him that goes all through the media and Curzon absolutely hates it for the rest of his life. It goes like this. My name is George Nathaniel Curzon. I'm a most superior person. My cheek is pink. My hair is sleek. I dine at Blenheim once a week. This bit of political doggerel absolutely slaughters Curzon. Stanley Baldwin gets elected. Curzon, of course, though, goes on to being a viceroy of India, nonetheless. So there you go. So I'm sorry that is a really irrelevant bit of information for you. <laughs> but you know but but worth worth it just to hear you in tone thank so you very much it was worth it Crowder. thank you very much so the 1924 victory and interestingly interestingly this is kind of Asquith's big political mistake that he allows Labour to to form a government because he believes that they will prove to be incompetent is a whole bunch of people who've never held government high office. And he goes, ah, oh, you know, this is going to set the stage for, for us liberals to come roaring back. This is a fatal error. Quite right, too. And that's it's basically the end of the liberals now. Significant things that happen under Stanley Baldwin's reign. I mean, not very much happens in a funny sort of way, but in terms of government policy or party politics, Stanley Baldwin is very much a lover of English and English, Englishness. He says, the English are at heart and in practice, the kindest people in the world, discuss. And his sort of homely approach makes him very popular. But it's him who in 1926 has to deal with one of the most significant events in industrial relations of the century, which you probably are more competent to talk about than me. No, sir. You're not? No, sir. You are the 1926 general no, strike. No, you, you, Surely that is your meat and drink. Before we get there, we do need to dwell upon Ramsay MacDonald. And this is epoch-defining because we have the Labour Party coming to power. But what this does, this really divides people who voted Liberal. So if you were a radical Liberal, you moved to the Labour Party. But if you were, a, let's say, a more moderate Liberal and you were worried about socialism, because one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that one of the outcomes of World War One is going to be Soviet Russia. And in the immediate wake of the defeat of Tsarism and then the defeat of Germany is the rise of communist parties all over Eastern Europe. So Hungary goes communist for, for a very brief period. And even though there's this big civil war in Russia, you have... Um, 
many countries all over the world, whether it's the United States, it's going to be the first red scare over there. Whether it is in Britain, then there's going to be a fake letter from Zinoviev, who is a Russian foreign minister, which has an impact on, on, on a British election. People are really worried about revolution. So if you are a, a nice, moderate liberal, the last thing you're going to do is then move leftwards. You actually move rightwards to the Conservative Party. So this really does squeeze the liberals. But just as a footnote, several Labour ministers in later generations, uh, we're going to have Michael Foote, who leads the Labour Party in the 1980s, and then Tony Benn, who's a lion of the Labour Party from the 1960s to the early 1990s, are all sons of Liberal MPs, so it just shows you this, this shift. So we have the first Labour government, and what they do is to... They, this, the 1923 general election, as you said, is fought on the Conservatives' protectionist laws. Though Labour then come into power in January 1924, even though they only have 191 MPs. So it does have the support of some remaining Liberals. Now, the government only lasts for 10 months long, but Labour has proven that it can actually hold office. People needn't worry about imminent revolution. But what does mark the 1920s is a real crisis in terms of inflation, unemployment, and this is before we get to the end of the 1920s, and we're going to have the, the Great Depression. This is going to lead in 1926 to the general strike, where the Trades Union Congress coordinates a set of strikes for about nine days, where literally the whole country comes to a full stop. Literally every industry is out and picketing and, and striking. David Crowther. How does the Conservative government react to that? Well, the Tory government is very determined to break the strike indeed, and they react with a lot of propaganda. And indeed, they win. You know, the, the strike does end and the, the government sits it out. Another interesting aspect, though, of that is the involvement of press barons. So we're used now to arguing about, you know, how much influence the likes of Rupert Murdoch have over our press and so on and so forth. There is no doubt in this period that Lord Rothermere and Beaverbrook are absolutely involved in politics in a very intimate way and want to get rid of Stanley Baldwin and try very hard to do so. And they are very much using the press against the general strike as well. So it's a very deep involvement of these very powerful press barons. I don't know how to judge the framework of it, but I would say far more powerful even than they are now. So they sit it out. And they're determined to break it. And in the end, we do. But you probably know more about the long-term impacts of the strike than me, since I don't really do the 20th century. 20th what? <laughs> well, th th this is going to be a real rallying call for, for the left. And it goes into left of centre kind of mythology in, in 19, 1926. And the left kind of sees that it has to be much more coordinated in terms of its kind of like political and kind of union action going forward. It's seen as pivotal. And just three years after that, there's going to be a general election where the Labour Party, for the first time in its history, is going to become the largest party in the House of Commons. It only gets 287 seats, which is just over 37% of the popular vote. 
and Ramsay MacDonald is back in power. However, the timing is all wrong because we have a, a world downturn which starts in Wall Street in October of 1929. So the government is soon engulfed in what's going to become the Great Depression and with this global slump in, in world trade. So by the end of 1930, unemployment has doubled to over two and a half million. There's a crisis of confidence in the pound. The cabinet is deadlocked about what it should do. And several influential members are unwilling to support cuts in the budget. And, and they don't want to cut the rate of unemployment benefit. Fundamentally, we are bust. We have to do something, but we don't know what to do. But that Labour government, the second one, is going to become paralysed with the Chancellor refusing to consider deficit spending or to raise tariffs as, as some level of alternative. So the government is split and this split is unworkable. The government resigns and MacDonald is encouraged by the King, who's now George V, to form an all-party national government to deal with the crisis. Britain's in crisis, the whole world is in crisis. This is the Great Depression. The 1931 national government is also crucial to Labour history, isn't it? One of those absolutely iconic, if that's the right word, moments and the treachery, as is seen by some, of Ramsay MacDonald forming the, the national government. Yes, they're seen as being traitors to, to the to the Labour cause. It's when you look back at the history of the Labour Party, the fact that Ramsay MacDonald forms the, the first Labour administration, people kind of say it underneath their breath. They'll talk about Keir Hardy all day long, yes. the first leader, but they'll, Ramsay MacDonald, because he's seen as siding with the Tories. Yes, it's an absolutely fundamentally he's sort of out isn't he he's you'd have thought Ramsay MacDonald would be with this great Labour hero this man who made Labour electable and he's really not in many circles seemed no, as a hero uh, at not, all. not at all the next leader after Ramsay MacDonald in 1935 is going to be one Clem Attlee one of the lions of British 20th century politics and doesn't really outside of the Labour Party don't quite think he kind of kind of gets his due but the Labour Party in the 1931 election has been opposed to spending cuts but they really found it really hard to defend the party's record when it was in government and this leads to of a, a, a realignment of the left. You have the National Labour Party, which forms the, the government with, with conservatives and, and with, some, with some liberals. But you have this Labour Party, which then soldiers on whilst the world and Britain is in the grips of depression. The Labour Party does receive a revival in 1935, the 1935 election, winning some 154 seats. But actually, its popular vote is some 38%, which is actually its highest ever. So Lloyd George is still the leader of the Liberal Party, a much smaller Liberal Party. But the Liberals still have some level of intellectual energy. The 1929 election was really the last time when he really tried to return the Liberals to the political stage so to speak so they could really gain power 
there was this paper called We Can Conquer Unemployment. And it was written by, any idea? I do not know. John Maynard Keynes. Hey, of course. Silly me. So in terms of somebody who is going to be instrumental in terms of putting together the intellectual framework of how you dig a nation's economy out of a recession at Keynes, I think as in Keynesian economics, he actually wrote that paper. So there is still a lot of intellectual heft to the Liberals, but they just can't seem really now to really put too many bums on seats when it comes to Parliament. By the 1935 general election, the Liberals have 17 MPs elected alongside Lloyd George, and there are three who call themselves independent Liberals. So the 1930s are very much the, the decade in the shadow to what's happening in Europe with a resurgent Germany under Adolf Hitler. In British party politics, we have the rise of British fascism under Oswald Mosley. And we see pitched fights in the east end of London between those on the left and those on the extreme right. And these things will become iconic in Labour Party history. Also, we have the Spanish Civil War, where many Labour Party members go off to fight on the side of the Republicans against the fascists. Obviously, in 1938, we have the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who goes to, to Munich to help to forestall a war in Europe and comes back claiming peace in our time after doing a deal with Herr Hitler. And what happens there is the division of Czechoslovakia, whereby the Germans take the Sudetenland and, and then just some months later are going to take the rest of Bohemia. And, and at this point, we all really know that war is pressing. The one politician all the way through the 1930s, who has given a real note of caution to British policy, which is to go soft on the rising of, of Nazi Germany, is one Winston Churchill, somebody who we haven't really spoken a lot about, but who starts off a conservative in the 19th century, becomes a liberal, and is a liberal war minister all the way through the First World War, and then goes back to becoming conservative. And he is going to be one of the most strident voices for not only rearming, but having a robust policy against Nazi Germany. You know the guy Edwin Scrimger I mentioned, the single MP and leader of the Scottish yes. Prohibition Parliament? I believe he is also responsible for beating mm -hmm. Winston Churchill in a by-election in Dundee, and being the result of him losing oh. a seat. And Winston Churchill, of course, is an extremely difficult figure before the Second World War in both Liberal and Conservative Party histories. And many Conservatives absolutely hated and distrusted him. So the Second World War in more ways than one is very transformative for Winston Churchill in terms of his reputation. And if it hadn't been for the Second World War, Lord knows what we would have thought of him. We wouldn't even have remembered him, I think. You know, so many of those politicians of that period are kind of lost lost to, to the ether but but yes and it's the, the very fact that he is seen as not part of the 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 government who have done this discredited policy of appeasement by the time that we have the disaster of of dunkirk that he is then able then to lead the wartime coalition he comes to power because there's no one else re really to turn to 
I think we also forget just how important and dominant Neville Chamberlain was. He was absolutely the coming man. And Winston Churchill also was very well poorly thought of by Labour because he'd been so aggressive about strike breaking. And of course, he was the man who returned us to a gold standard somewhat disastrously. So his reputation was a pretty rubbish. And as you say, the only thing that really leads him to power is his view on, on foreign policy. And also because another candidate wasn't obvious once Neville Chamberlain had been discredited by peace in our time. Yeah. Although Neville Chamberlain, of course, was being told by military uh, chiefs uh, that we could not win the war easily before, certainly not before 1938. And even then, it was a pretty dour outlook. The other thing which discredits Churchill in many people's eyes is that he's seen as the person behind Gallipoli. That was his yes, plan. Indeed, yeah. and, that, and so many men needlessly lost their lives on this futile attempt to, to leave those uh, beaches there. So you're, you're completely right. You know, if you, if you were looking at the British political firmament in, in 39, you wouldn't have said, ha-ha, the next coming man's going to be Winston Churchill. You'd have said completely the opposite, completely the opposite. So we find ourselves at war just a generation after the First World War against the same enemy. There is the fall of France and... Uh, one Winston Churchill is going to become prime minister and then galvanize a nation that sees itself as the last bastion of democracy and freedom away from the Nazi jackheeled boot in Europe. We enter into a period of coalition government in the Second World War. And out of that, surprisingly, though, everybody says Churchill's speeches and spirit have helped take this country through from what seems like certain defeat in 1940 to victory with its coalition partners of the Soviet Union and the United States. There is an election in 1945. People presume that the person that, who won the war, Churchill, was going to be returned. He's not. And we have a whole new political landscape in Britain whereby Clement Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party, has a landslide victory winning just under 50% of the vote and has a mandate for radical social change. We've, we've fought communally together, us English, us Brits, and we see that now is an opportunity to really recreate our whole society and we give a mandate to the Labour Party to bring in a whole new swathe of welfare legislation to nationalise in industries, and the crowning glory of that government is going to be the National Health Service. All right, well, I've got a monster of a job, but it's all my own fault. Now, David, I don't know how I'm going to edit this thing down, because no. I always thought that you were the one for the blather, for the chat, but actually it's ah, me. Now we know, don't we? Now we know. So, David, what we haven't done in the last two episodes is have a Facebook roundup, but I believe we I've have one from that. our Luke. We do. It's a new year and things seem to be back in their place. Well, the things that made England anyway. The rest of the world is a right royal mess. We have the big boys releasing episodes of Heft and I can return to my safe space of revisiting the TTME Facebook page to round it all up. 
our episodes have come out so sparsely and the glorious heavy metal episode did not come accompanied by a Facebook roundup, so I thought I might as well wrap the whole of 2022 into this one. Even if we are a little lax about regular episodes, we do have a lovely gang on Facebook who keep, keep it fed with great little nuggets. Some are even vaguely related to the episode themes. Heavy metal might not have been loved by all, but it did get people talking. And as it turns out, heavy metal, unlike rave culture, was voted into the cabinet of things that made England by quite a handsome margin as it turned out. A full 45% of voters voted into the cabinet it goes. Interestingly, this number did not include David Crowther himself, the person who actually proposed it in the first place. He voted for it to go into a small plastic caddy. 29% of people voted for it to go nowhere printable, including our own dear Fiona and David's brother. I don't think Royfield voted at all. So horrified was he by the whole proceeding. As we heard on a recent episode, he has sullied his brummy copybook by disdaining the only cultural achievement of any note to have come from his native Birmingham. I'm going to be in so much trouble. I'd better move on. Squeezing a whole year into a five-minute roundup will inevitably mean that I have, will have missed some highlights. So, as ever, I urge you to join up to the Things That Made England Facebook site and feast yourselves on the banquets of delight that you can find there. We have had a steady flow of joiners over the year. I haven't been able to welcome everyone aboard, but if I have missed you, consider yourselves ceremoniously piped on board. I'll probably have to tackle this roundup in themes to try to make uh, sense of it all. One theme that we have could be called the check it out theme, where members share something that they think might interest or amuse the group. We've had a lot of noddy holder from Slade posts, for example. I mean, lots. I blame David. But on a more highbrow note, Richard recommended a book, The Gamekeeper and Other Stories by Barry Hind, that he thought would be of interest to anyone following the Footpaths and Commons episodes. We started the year with a post from one of our most prolific Facebook members, scurrilously trying to fabricate a tall tale of partying under lockdown by the good people of the things that made England. As with all of these stories of illicit partying that so exercised the press of the day, this also came to nothing and no one's reputation was any the worse. Rob posted a fascinating video about the British emigrating to Australia in the 1960s and being bashed as whinging poms. Melissa posted about her favourite British shop in the American Midwest and it turns out that Jennifer had visited the self-same shop only the year before. In April, we had The Songs That Made England, a most excellent endeavour available on Spotify. Everyone was allowed to nominate 10 songs and 10 songs only, and they all went into the playlist. Against all odds, it works. It currently stands at a proud 111 songs. Hmm. There must have been some sort of jiggery-pokery to get an extra song in somewhere. It's well worth a listen, and we have a classical one available too. Again, for the more cultured, David M. shared an article that allows you to hear Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in the original 14th century English. Stephen, again, posted a map of England divided up according to friendliness. Unsurprisingly, us southerners came off badly, and my home county of Buckinghamshire was coloured a frigid blue. 
Historic London Tours posts weekly and you can always find a nugget of interest about London in his posts. Another common theme is when someone appeals to the hive mind of the group to pose a random question. For example, I enjoyed Alison Mary asking why knickers and trousers are plural, but bras, vests and jumpers are singular. Or Tim Canny wondering what was the correct spelling of Bicky, as in the diminutive of biscuit. Or Bill Debbie's question from a colonial, what are the boundaries of Northern England? Does it extend all the way to Liverpool in the west and to the Scottish border in the north? I will continue calling you Bill Debbie for all time. You know that, don't you? So, if you want the answer to these questions, again, come over to the Facebook group. One of our other regular features could be described as Aren't that lot on the other side of the Atlantic a bit weird? And this does cut both ways. We had a very lively debate when Royfield revealed the astonishing fact that Americans do not put butter on the bread for their sandwiches. The Post currently has 118 comments. Fortunately, there are some sane Americans, such as Tony's husband from Indiana, who has never made an unbuttered sandwich. But really, what was all that palaver about back in 1776? If, after 200-odd years, you're going to end up making sandwiches without butter. Apart from the aforementioned heavy metal episode, 2022 also saw the release of the beer episode that dropped in late January. This inevitably got the juices flowing and has caused regular posts throughout the year. Ken is very much a real ale man. That's a real ale man rather than a real ale man, if you get my drift. He prefers a cold American ale to a British real ale. But when he's over here, he'll make an effort to drink a proper English beer, served as it should be at room temperature, of course. If you follow him on Facebook, you get to see him supping beers in various locations. So he was delighted with this episode. Beer did get in the cabinet, but only just. And obviously, at the end of the summer, we got the sad news of the passing of Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. I'm not sure whether we will ever do an episode on her, and it might be a little superfluous, given the extensive media coverage of her life that we got at the time. But I'm pretty sure that we can agree that she is a thing that made England what she is today, as the tagline of the show goes. She was a steadying presence throughout the turbulent post-war years, and the only monarch many of us have ever known to date. Zach and Stephanie posted some moving tribute to the Queen, we also revisited the TTME queuing episode when the queue became a big news story and we heard terrible tales of celebrities jumping the queue and David Beckham was briefly the toast of the town as he stood in line with the rest of Hoi Polloi. He then went on to spoil it by being a very well remunerated ambassador for the morally dubious Qatar World Cup. Speaking of football, 2022 saw an English team actually win an international tournament for the first time in my lifetime, when the women's team, inevitably dubbed the Lionesses, won the European Cup and beating Germany in the final no less. And being the cultured types that we are, we even had a post of the overplayed Three Lions ditty sung in Latin, because that's how we roll. And only very tangentially related to football, Marilyn wants an episode on the Wagatha Christie trial, 
If you don't know what this is, I hesitate to urge you to find out unless you have a penchant for tales from the gutter press. But it is all quite funny. Lastly, I am sure you will all join me in wishing all the best to our Fiona. She has had a very difficult 2022. The good news is that she is recovering from her accident and on the mend. Bless you, Fiona. We all look forward to hearing your dulcet tones sooner rather than later. I hope that you are enjoying the politics episodes from David and Royfield. I am finding them fascinating and a real education. What an erudite pair they are. And amazingly, they seem to be spinning the series out over even more episodes than buns. Who would have thought that there would be more to say about the history of English politics than about how to combine flour, water, yeast and sugar? On the off chance that our dear leaders have not followed procedure and missed mentioning Patreon, let me remind you that we do have a Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash ttme it's all a bit random but you can join at various levels including as an executive producer which means that you get a special thanks thusly thanks to marilyn little eric traumata michelle gersich kurt christian rowena card steve doc pinko cloutier rochelle booth glassy witch and stephen bowden i wish you all The very best, 2023. Go well and cheers. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, everybody who contributed on Facebook. So, Crowther, we're up to 1945. We're on the home stretch. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm looking forward to your next episode because I know sod all about the 20th century and care even less. The only interesting history, Royfield, is about dead people not living people. Well, dare I say, everyone who is in power in the Clematley administration, they're all long dead, right? And even okay, the Churchill well, administration is going to come afterwards. You know, I think we can fairly safely say every politician of any note is dead up until about 1975 now. So we've still got the great so, Michael Foot to come. Anyway, let's stop we'll now. your interest. Goodbye, everybody. Cheers, everybody. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.